Hey everybody and thanks for coming back to Serial Zombie Mom. Today's case is going to be a little bit different than all the others. Um, it wasn't really a hugely publicized case, um, but the people in Asheville um, all knew of this case when it did happen. Uh, and this is one that was that's kind of close to my family. And I'll kind of explain that as I go along, um, how I myself am connected to this case. Now, usually I give a whole backstory on the perpetrator, you know, born here, how many siblings, what their upbringing was like, you know, whatever. But I don't really have all of this in this case. At least not unless he decides to write me back. So, you know, my my husband and I are writing this, this man a letter, and I'll explain a little bit more um, later on. And there may be an amendment to this where I add on to the the episode or I do a follow-up episode. Um, so we'll see if he's willing to write me back um, or be willing to even speak with me. But as of right now, um, the letter hasn't been sent and uh, there's not really, you know, much to be said. Now, the one thing I can tell you is that um, his birthday is March 28th of 1957. Now, if I hear back from him, or anything, I'm definitely going to do um, some kind of an update or uh, follow-up. So, you know, just keep that in mind, and, and hopefully we'll hear something back pretty soon. Uh, we plan on getting this sent out before the end of the weekend. Now, the rest of this episode is just going to be comprised of a lot of info from a few first-hand accounts. Um, you know, after I've personally spoken to a couple of individuals. Um, public record as well as court records, and a couple of TV shows. Now, one of them we saw about six months ago, you know, and then um, as I'm doing more and more research, just trying to get ready to word this properly and kind of script it out a little bit just to make this a little e easier for the episode, I found two others having to do with um, this man in these cases. So I'll talk a little bit about them. Uh, one of them, I, I'm just going to say flat out, they didn't get their facts straight. And we have a very, very obvious issue with that specific show and how it was handled. And, um, the fact that they fudged a little bit of stuff to try and get a better rating off of it. So I'll get into that probably towards the end when I discuss the, the shows in general. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of start with the victims and what we know. Kind of do it in a timeline fashion um, as, as things happened. Um, because it was a 20-year fight. A 20-year um, issue. So, around 1 a.m. on April 14th of 1979... 40-year-old Harriet Delaney Simmons, a mom of seven, whose kids ranged anywhere from nine years old to 22, left her job at Johnny's. Johnny's was a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina. She was driving to Nashville, Tennessee. She was going to go visit a friend and go on a dream trip. She never got to take any time for herself with seven kids. Trust me, I understand you know, it's it's hard to get to do things for yourself. So, she loved to sing. She loved 
uh, music, and her big dream was to go to Tennessee and go to the Grand Ole Opry. So she made a, made a plan and finally was just going to do it. Now, she told her family, you know, I, I'm going to leave work and go straight there. It'll probably be, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning before I get there, but that's where I'm going. Well, 10.30 comes, and she still hasn't called. So the family calls the friend in Tennessee. Now, this friend says what no one ever wants to hear. You know, she never arrived. Now, police are notified, um, and her son-in-law, Ronnie DeMint, actually decides, you know what, I don't have anything else going on. I'm, I'm going to trace her route. I'm going to go the same route that she would have taken. So he sees, as he's driving, he goes down I-40, and he sees her car at a rest stop near I-40 west of Statesville, and observes that her suitcase... Her thermos, all this is still in the car, but her keys and her purse are gone. And the car had a flat, but it was a brand new car. She had just recently got it. Now he looks around, asks around. She's not at the rest stop, and no one's seen her. So he calls 911. Around 11.30 p.m., on August 24th, 1979, so approximately four months later, 21-year-old Betty Sue McConnell calls her mother from work, letting her know that she's meeting a friend at a local bowling alley in Asheville. Early the next morning, August 25th, a couple looks out the window of their home along the French Broad River and say that a woman, later ID'd as McConnell, was lying in their driveway. Now, she had a multitude of stab wounds to the chest, extending from neck to stomach. Now, when she was discovered by the Helmses, and I'm, I'm going to say something a little later here, because my husband's last name is Helms, um, they say she was soaking wet, cover, blood covered her chest, skin very white, gasping for air, uh, and that she supposedly had made two statements just before she passed away, stating, and I quote, I was stabbed and thrown into the river, and I was picked up at work by two guys. Now, these statements were alleged, um, as many believe that maybe she might have been dead already by the time that they got to her, and by the time that help arrived. Now, Really quick, I just want to say something, because when she's discovered by Don and Sue Helms, you know, my husband and I couldn't help but to go, wait a minute, what? Because his mom and dad were Dean and Sue. So it makes us wonder, was it their home? Or was it just a coincidence that this man and woman were Don and Sue? Now, this is something that we have not been able to clear up. Uh, we haven't had the opportunity to speak to my father-in-law about this um, specifically on that issue. Um, however, 
you know, we find it kind of uncanny that maybe they just got his name wrong. They might have said something, you know, typed it in wrong or wrong in the computers or whatever, or written it down wrong or whatever. I'm not sure, but it is stated that it was a Don and Sue Helms. Okay. Now, McConnell's sunglasses were found on the opposing bank of the river um, from where she was found. And law enforcement officers found bloodstains in the area of grass with a trail of blood leading to where she was found. Now, this was about 50 feet from the river. Her car was found a couple of miles upstream, submerged into the river, a scrape found on one side of the car, and the driver's side window rolled down. Um, so it makes it look at that point that, you know, she wrote, she drove into the river and crawled out of the, out of the car. But as we see, that's not necessarily the case. Now her autopsy shows five stab wounds to the left chest, a wound below the collarbone that went through the upper lobe of her left lung and perforated the pulmonary artery, which caused her death. Now also found was semen in her vaginal vault. The rape kit was sent to the lab on August 31st of 1979. However, this rape kiss kit got lost. So that bit of evidence never got to be tested. Now, granted, in 79, they were just learning stuff about, you know, DNA. It wasn't a big thing yet. Um, you know, really all they could do was type things and it, it wasn't an exact science yet so that unfortunately was something that um we've lost and it couldn't be tested later when dna became uh you know a big thing now on october 19th 1979 so shortly after this Around 4 a.m., Carolyn Brigman states that she was kidnapped at knife point while walking home from work. She said the man threw her into his truck, took her over to a remote area, said that he drove, um, or as he drove, that he kept a knife by his side, repeatedly running his finger over the blade. Told her a couple times to take off her clothes, but somehow... She convinces him to let her go and not to rape her. The man tells her, look, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to give you back your life. And while crossing over a bridge, over a river, he says, I had to put a lot of bodies in there. And then he tells her that he'd do the same thing to her if she told anybody. She was robbed of $40, and then he threw her purse out the window. Now, she immediately went to the police um, and charges this man. This man's name was Terry Hyatt. She was able to identify. She was able to, you know, put a name to the face, tell about the truck, all of this stuff. He gets in trouble for this. About a year later... Um, 1980, a turkey hunter finds a skull and later a skeleton in a wooded area of Pisgah National Forest near Highway 151 in Candler. Now, a search of the area 
actually produced pieces of clothing, uh, jewelry, keys, and other personal effects, and a short segment of silver duct tape. Now, the pieces of the body obviously had been, um, you know, strewn about by animal activity um, and things as well. So, you know, that kind of destroyed this supposed crime scene. Plus, with the body being um, decomposed so far, they knew that there was not going to be a lot, but they were going to they were going to still go through all the um, evidence that they had. These personal items actually became identified as belonging to Harriet Simmons. Now, the North Carolina Bureau of Investigation matched the keys also to a sales order made out to Simmons at the dealership where she had recently gotten her car, and the dental records identified her shortly after. An autopsy revealed multiple stab wounds, again to the left chest, just like with Betty, Betty Sue McConnell, and made with a knife or knife-like object that would have penetrated her heart, lungs, and other vital organs. Fast forward seven more years. 1987, 19-year-old Jerry Ann Jones is waiting for a ride home from work in Charlotte, North Carolina. Jerry was supposed to be picked up by her boyfriend, Reggie, who had borrowed her car. And she was supposed to be taken to, taken to her sister's home because they were going to get together and spend some time together. Unfortunately, her boyfriend never showed up. Now, it's not really clear as to why, you know, did he just forget to pick her up? Did he forget um, or just decide not to go get her? Like, there, there's not really any, any clear um, reason for that. Now, when she didn't show up, her sister calls their father, and they also try to contact the boyfriend. The father goes to the home of the boyfriend the next morning after she still doesn't show up. And her car is there. Well, when they call him and when he comes to the door, he runs. He freaks out because he thinks he's in trouble for having her car. She just got it. He knew that the dad wouldn't have been happy with anybody else driving her car. And possibly because he realized, ah, oh, shit, he's pissed off at me. I've got her car and I forgot to pick her up from work. Shit. They go in his home on their own, and they check on everything. And they're like, you know, well, they call for her. They're checking every nook and cranny, thinking that he did something to her. They find nothing, and then they file a missing persons report. So when the cops actually question Reggie, um, he states that he ran because he wasn't supposed to drive the car. And he used her car and just forgot to pick her up. Now, he maintains that he was supposed to... Um, or he maintains his innocence all through the questioning. And they finally say, you know what? This just doesn't sound like he did it. I, I really don't think he did it. He's totally clueless to all this. So the police turn to the general public asking for help. They distribute a photo through media. Um, and then a young girl actually comes to the station with her mother. Apparently she had been riding her bike late that evening. Um, and realized that... Jerry Ann had been standing outside of work, obviously waiting for a ride, when a truck pulls up. They theorize that this driver asked her for directions and then grabbed her. Now, Jerry's body was found two days later with her throat slit. 
by a hiker, less than a mile from the store where she worked at. She was in a heavily wooded area, but near a well-driven road. Semen had been found in and around her mouth, as well as a cigarette butt found very, very close to her body. At this point, they have been searching. The family wants to know what's going on. We have, you know, three, four victims here. One that gets away, you know, and it's just, thank God this woman gets away. The other three weren't so lucky, unfortunately. Um, and all three of these become cold cases because they're like, well, what the hell? You know, they can't figure out what's going on. They, these all become a cold case. Um, Harriet Simmons, you know, it was a year before they found her body. When they when they told the family, you know, the one of the, her daughters actually says, you know, I, I thought for a second that they found her and my mom was going to come home. And it took her a couple of seconds to realize, oh, no, no, mama's never coming home. Um, when Betty Sue McConnell was found, she had been driving her sister's car. So the sister gets pulled in and she's like, no, my sister was driving the car. You know, where, where is she at? Like, why, you know, did she get into a wreck? Like, what's, what's going on? And so when they tell her, then she has to go and break the news to her mother. Now, Betty Sue McConnell was a mother of a two-year-old uh, little girl named Heather. And she lived with her parents, and she worked, and the parents helped her out. So, And unfortunately, you know, they lost their daughter. So here they have a lot of unanswered questions. Her daughter Heather has a lot of unanswered questions at this point. Harriet Simmons' seven children wanted to know what happened to their mother. And then we've got Jerry Ann Jones, whose father and sister and boyfriend and everybody wanted to know what happened. Now, fast forward another 11 years, almost 20 years after our first victim, Mr. Jerry Harmon, who was an acquaintance of my father-in-law, Dean, um, visits Captain Pat Hefner at the Buncombe County Sheriff's Department. Now, Harmon was intoxicated, and he was known to be a pretty heavy drinker. Now, it stated that he had information that he wanted to get off his chest. In the documentaries and things that I watched, there are two accounts... Actually, let me clear this up a little bit better. When I read the court documents... The court documents say that he state that he walked into the Buncombe County Sheriff's Department and spoke with Captain Hefner. Now, when you watch these these documentaries, they all say, "No, he was in the emergency room. He had he had alcohol poisoning. He thought he was dying, um, and called because he wanted to get this off his chest." Okay, so there's a little bit of an issue here as to what to believe. Now, one of the documentaries, you actually meet Jerry Harmon, you see him, they, they show him, um, and, you know, supposedly he doesn't seem to be, like, a much of a drinker or anything anymore, but I don't know about that. Um, however, you know, that's just a detail, apparently, you know, so, 
he describes the rape and murder of Betty Sue McConnell. He tells them, you know, this girl, this is what happened, you know, whatever. And this is who did it. So he names Terry Alvin Hyatt as her murderer. Harmon relates that he and Hyatt had been drinking all day on the 24th of August, 1979, and that they had just rode around and partied. Now, he said that between 10 and 12 midnight that they had been driving around and that Terry pulled his truck up beside a car that was stopped at a traffic light. Now, in one of the documentaries, it actually says that it was more like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, but from all the court documents and everything, um, I trust those a little bit more <laughs> than these documentaries, and it says between about 10 and 12 at midnight. Um, so they were driving around, and they pull up and see a pretty girl driving, driving by herself. Um, Terry makes kind of an obscene gesture to her, um, and when she pulls away, obviously disgusted and irritated, Hyatt pulls up behind her and drives into the back of the back bumper of the car, kind of forcing her off the road. Now, Hyatt runs to her car, pushes her into the passenger seat, and yells for Herman to follow in the truck, and then he drives off. Jerry Herman follows until Terry Hyatt pulls off on an isolated, kind of wooded area little road, where he pulls Betty Sue from the car, holding a knife to her. He takes her to the back of the truck that's being driven by Jerry Harmon. And Hyatt tells her that, look, I'm not going to hurt you, but you're going to have sex with us before I let you go. So he rapes the girl while Harmon watches from outside the truck. He says he wants nothing to do with it. And he, you know, passes everything off. Hyatt gets back into her car with her, drives to an isolated location adjacent to the French Broad River, while Jerry Herman follows. Terry then drags her down to the water, out of Harmon's sight. However, he can hear that she's screaming. When the screaming stops, Terry returns, and Jerry asks him, you know, you killed that girl, didn't you? Well, Terry says, yeah, yeah, I did. I stabbed her and threw her into the river. He takes her car upstream to another location and actually drives the car into the river, partially submerging it with Harmon following in the truck to pick him up. Now, at this point, he tells, this is where it gets really, really, really close to my family, okay? Um, at this point, he says, you know, this is what's happened, and there's another friend. You know, I quit hanging out with him after this. You know, we were just acquaintances after this. Um, but I know somebody else who can corroborate this. He knows about it. And you need to go talk to Dean Helms. Well, this is my father-in-law. 
there's he, Jerry Herman saying he already, you know, he knows about this murder as well. Now, in October of 1998, so two months after Jerry Herman comes in, they go speak to my father-in-law. Um, Detective Tim Shook, uh, an SBI agent, and Detective Ann Benjamin of Buncombe County Sheriff's Department um, go and question Dean. And this is where we have some questions as well. In the one specific documentary um, that we have the issues with, they show him at a nursing home. Um, he was in his home. This is all family members that I had spoken to. Um, all of them say no. They came and questioned him at his home. The court documents say it was at his home. However, in all these documentaries, they're saying no, they came to um, the nursing home where he was at. And I'll explain that here in just a bit as well. So they come and question him about this kidnapping and murder. Well, they walk in the door and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to see you guys. I've been praying about all of this. And, you know, yes, I'm willing to talk. Um, he then begins to describe how he and Hyatt kidnapped a woman from a rest area 20 years previously during a drive from Greensboro to Asheville. Agent Shook realizes, look, this isn't Betty Sue McConnell we're talking about. This isn't the same one that Jerry Harmon was telling us. This is the unsolved murder of Harriet, Harriet Simmons. Now, in order to try and get Terry Hyatt into the station... Um, they decide, you know, all right, we're, we want to talk to him about the McConnell and Simmons cases. Um, so we're going to go to his home and there's a missing girl from around here, an Amber Lundgren. Something about that case makes me wonder if he was, um, if he did have something to do with that case, but they're saying, no, it was, it was somebody else and they knew that. So... They knew that he had no ties to this case. So they go and ask him, and he's like, no, I don't have anything to do with this, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, he lives at home with his father, and they're investigating this murder. So he's like, no, I'll, I'll come down to the station. I'll, let me get my truck keys. I'll take the truck down there. You can fingerprint it. You can check it. You know, whatever. I don't care. By doing this, they get him into that room to question him, and they start getting really cozy with him and he starts blabbing and he starts talking after a while they start realizing that you know yeah he's admitting to his sordid past he's admitting that he's a jerk he's admitting that he's robbed people and he's done bad things um we've got him so they tell him you know, hey, we've got these fingerprints here, and you need to tell us about this. And you need to tell us about that. And then they arrest him. Now, at the trial, my father-in-law is there. Um, he is testifying on the Simmons case um, and not the McConnell case. And I'm going to read out pretty much what he testifies to, okay? 
Um, he and Terry were returning from a beach trip in 1979. They had actually been to Myrtle Beach. Um, and they had actually encountered a woman with car trouble at a rest stop. She had a flat tire, and they told her that they would help her by driving her to get a part for her car, that they knew somebody that stayed open 24 hours, and that they'd go and help. Now, Dean testified that she got into the van, but later stated that he and Terry took her unwillingly. Now, he admits that. He says, yeah, you know, we, we were able to get her in the car, uh, or into the van, and they drove her up to the, up the mountainside outside of Candler and stopped on a dirt road. Terry had sex with her in the back of the van, and Dean testifies that she was willing, however, that she was scared of both of them as, not, as Hyatt had a knife. Hyatt takes her into the woods while Dean remained in the van. He hears the screams from the woman, and when Terry comes back about 30 minutes later, he emerges from the woods with blood on the bottom of his shirt and tells Dean, my father-in-law, that she took off walking. When they drove down the mountain, they threw her purse out the window. Now, Dean never said that he killed her, just that he had blood on the shirt. Now, during the trial, Miss um, Simmons' daughter calls Terry a monster. She says, you know, I'm just sorry he can't be killed more than once. And he's indicted on May 3rd of 1999 of first-degree kidnapping, robbery, excuse me, robbery with a dangerous weapon, first-degree rape, and first-degree murder, and tried capitally on January 10th of 2000 and sentenced to death. Now, he's on death row now, but with the freeze in executions in North Carolina, he's still sitting in jail and waiting to hear when they'll resume and give him an actual execution date. Now, Hyatt's team actually decided they were going to try and disqualify Dean's testimony as a witness on the grounds that he was unintelligible and incapable of being cross-examined at trial. He testifies, Dean testifies that he suffers from viral encephalitis, which is a motor disease that affected his speech, amongst other things. The obligation of the trial court to make preliminary competency determination is embodied in Rules 104A and 601 in the North Carolina Rules of Evidence. The court may disqualify a witness when, and I quote, incapable of expressing himself concerning the matter as to be understood either directly or through interpretation. Now, even though they had to have him repeat himself a multitude of times, he was understood enough to be deemed a competent witness. Now, since this, he is incompetent. He has been deemed incompetent. We are his actual guardians right now, legally. And I'm going to explain his story just a little bit, okay? Just to understand kind of what his backstory is. 
because I find it really important to put this out there. My father-in-law, you know, may have had a, a little bit of a rough start. You know, he may have had, you know, issues with the law, uh, ran with the wrong crowd, you know, whatever. Um, but he did get in trouble um, in, you know, the early 80s. Um, you know, he, he tells us, you know, yeah, we were, we were out doing stupid shit. I mean, he and, and Terry were going down to Myrtle Beach and, you know, beating people up and stealing their money. And, and he said, you know, this, this was not something that I want to see my family do. This is something that I wish I hadn't have done. And one night he's sitting in a bar with a bunch of friends and somebody pisses, pisses him off. <laughs> the guy apparently calls him a son of a bitch and he turns around and stabs the man five times. They had had quite a few to drink, a few to drink and who knows what else. Now with this, he was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to inflict serious injury on February 19th of 1981 and sentenced to up to five years. On May 12th, 1982, they terminated his parole and he was moved from Henderson uh, Correction Center to Craggy Correction Center on November 9th of 1984. Um, he is released at that point. He got sick with viral encephalitis around 1986, or at least this is what, you know, family members had told me. It was, it was about 1986. This fucked with him. Like, he became a paraplegic. Um, it messed with his mental capacity. Um, he... His short-term memory is shit. Like, it's it's not good. Um, and he's had many, many issues. In all the time that I've known this man, you know, he's... Sometimes he says things that, you know, maybe he shouldn't say. But, again, it's his mental competency. You know, um, what he remembers is everything from when he was younger. And he still speaks about Terry Hyatt. And tells us. I mean, that was his best friend. That's what we find out. Is that Terry was his best friend. And when you've run around and you feel like that one person that's got your back. I mean, that's more than a best friend. That's like a brother. So, he kept his mouth shut for a long time. Be and But he'll tell you, you know, I thought he was the greatest. I thought he was my brother, my best friend. But that man and... And this is exactly how he says it. So he'll say, but that man was a son of a bitch. And he'll say it quite often. But, you know, I feel it's so important to to say these few, few things about, about my father-in-law. Um, and, and mention that he had these issues because that was 86 that he got sick. So by the time all this stuff happened in 98... And he's being questioned. His mental capacity, you know, yes, he could he could repeat the things that happened and he had to be questioned over and over and over again to get the story out because 
he gets off track really easily. He starts talking about something, he gets off track really, really easily. So they had to keep questioning him to keep him on track. He should not have been found competent enough to testify. And I do agree with that, as, as Hyatt's team did try to disqualify his testimony. They also tried to dismiss Jerry Harmon's as well as Dean's, due to the fact that both of them, Dean and Jerry Harmon, um, had records with the law. You know, both had significant criminal histories, um, and they were saying that their accounts in court were self-serving. Like, that was to get them out of trouble, to make deals or, or whatever. That wasn't necessarily the case. Um, at, at this point, Dean had been in and out of uh, nursing homes, but was living at home at this point, um, and being taken care of by family members. Like, he didn't have, I mean, he had already lost a lot. And he'll tell you, like, when you sit down and talk with him, he's like, there's a reason I'm in this wheelchair. He says, I'm in this wheelchair because of all the wrongs and everything that I did. God put me here because of everything that I did wrong. You know, I'm dealing with the consequences of everything that I did. And that's what he tells you. And that's what he truly believes. So he didn't, he didn't really have anything else to lose. I mean, he lost his family from being sick and having to be in jail and, and all this stuff. There, there was a lot of things that happened. And, you know, he, he didn't get to be in the lives of his six children. So, you know, you can't help but feel a lot for this man. And I'm going to tell you, he is the sweetest, nicest soul. And yes, he may have had a sordid past, but guess what? You know what? He learned from it and he, now he's dealing with his own consequences. He is a damn good man, though. And I swear, you know... I just, I, every time I see him, I want to give him a big hug. He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful person, um, that just had a sordid past. But there's a lot of people that have that, that had to go through things. Now, as I said, Dean had been sick since the early to mid eighties. Um, and they only seemed to hold him competent because of them questioning him multiple times to make sure the answers were consistent. Um, at this point, you know, I can't help but to question some coercion um, and his ability to understand the questions being asked of him because there's been multiple times we speak to him about certain things and, and we have to ask him in different ways before he gets what we're trying to talk to him about. So that's on my father-in-law. So... Um, now, as far as, as Jerry Harmon, you know, he thought he was sick. They all testify. And, you know, Terry Hyatt's still sitting in prison. He's sitting on death row right now. When he got put in jail for this, they put his DNA through CODIS. Um, because that's what they do with, with convicts. That's what they do nowadays when you're arrested, when you're put in jail... You have to submit DNA um, of multi multiple forms so that your DNA and your, your fingerprints and everything can be put into CODIS. With this, 
Charlotte got a hit on Jerry Ann Jones. Now, he has been convicted of the murder of Jerry Ann Jones, Harriet Simmons, and Betty Sue McConnell. Now, I know a lot of people are going to question, um, after seeing these episodes of these couple of, of um, documentaries and stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you about the good ones, <laughs> and then I'm going to tell you about my issues with the not-so-good one, okay? Cold Case Files, Season 4, Episode 22. Episode's name is Smoky Mountain Mystery. You actually meet Jerry Harmon. He sits there, and I, I feel like they glorify him. I feel like they show him up um, and make it seem like he didn't do anything wrong. Um, and that he's a rehabilitated man. They show him being a um, folk singer person sitting on his front porch and, and whatever. I guarantee you that man still has a drinking problem. I guarantee you that he knows more than he's willing to let on. Um, and that his relationship with Terry and my father-in-law was more than just an acquaintance. After that, I, I guarantee he spent more time with them. I mean, even my husband remembers Jerry Harmon um, from when he was a little kid. Family members all remembered him and were like, he's an ass. So, I'm just going to put that out there. They do glorify him. Now, in the episode, however, you do see my father-in-law. You see Lester Dean Helms. And they show his picture. And they show pictures of him testifying in court. They don't defame him in this episode. They just show he was here. He was sick. You know, he had issues, whatever. There's going to be people that question my father-in-law and his involvement. Um, there's questions on whether or not he was part of, you know, the rapes and, su and stuff himself. From what he has told myself and my husband and from what family members know, no. He didn't have any, any part of that. There was a question of whether or not Terry Hyatt forced her to perform oral sex on my father-in-law. Um, and he was like, I'll be honest, uh, we were so fucked up that night. I can't tell you whether or not that happened. He was like, but from my own recollection, no. I'm not going to do something like that to someone. And I truly believe him. Because at this point, he was like, I don't have anything to lose. You know, what are they going to do? I'm he, he's already sick. He's already got mental issue. He's, he's, he can't do things for himself. He's a paraplegic. What does he have to lose? So I don't see him being lying over this kind of stuff. He's really quick to tell you about what did happen. So I highly doubt that there's any issue with that there. But I just want to put it out there because people will ask. I have had people ask in talking about this with, you know, my 
side of the family, you know, about, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what we found out, or other family members on his side. Now, there was another episode that I found um, called, oh, Swamp Murders, I believe it was. And I can't remember the episode um, name or exactly which episode it was, um, but it mentions a cold case and a man comes forward about a cold case. Um, they do talk about Jerry Herman, but this one's all dramatized. Um, and they don't bring up Dean in that one at all. It's just the stuff about Betty Sue McConnell. They, they don't talk about, uh, the Harriet Simmons case or the Jerry Ann Jones case. I don't believe, um, they may have mentioned, uh, Jerry Ann Jones, but I, but I know they didn't talk about Harry and Harriet Simmons. Now, the issue I have, because the cold case files and the swamp um, murders episodes, both of those were done, I believe it was 2002, 2003. It's, it's been a while. Um, but about a year ago, Homicide City Charlotte, episode 2, the name of that is Trail of Evil. This is the one I have an issue with, people. This episode, while it goes through all the details of how everything happened, and, and, and don't get me wrong, these are good to watch, to understand what happened in the case, but you can't believe every single thing that you hear on a dramatization or a documentary. Because I had to go back and reread all the court documents after watching this episode to make sure I was reading correctly and make sure I could match things up. They did not get their facts straight and they consistently defame my father-in-law. Now, this one doesn't really cover Betty Sue McConnell. Um, but she is mentioned at the very end of the episode in just a quick black, um, black screen with white type across it stating that he also is serving for her murder as well. Now this show has the detective and Benjamin saying that when Jerry Harmon came forward and named my father-in-law as a, uh, another witness to these murders... She's like, well, I knew that name. I knew that name from somewhere. So I looked him back up and realized that I filed charges on him on child pornography. That is entirely false. If there was a charge on him for something along those lines, it was bullshit. Because I've spoken to all the family members... And pulled his records. All of that was bullshit. I think that was added in for an extra rating. Make him seem like he was a worse guy. In reality, um, a couple of snot-nosed kids came and invaded their property, my father-in-law's property... Um, and ran to their parents saying that they saw him in his bedroom masturbating. Whatever he did in his own home was his own fucking business. And 
with the blinds being open two inches, enough to where a kid could peek in if they tried, is not his fault. And those kids ought to be ashamed of themselves for that. Now, the fact that they had to bring that up in a very publicized, well-known show pisses me off. And it pisses my husband off and all his siblings and all of the Helms family. Because my husband carries his name. And it makes it seem as if my husband is the one that may have done these things. when Until they look at ages and realize, okay, no, 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 this is not the case. They also show, in this episode, their depiction of him shows him as a very mentally competent person. That the sickness only affected him physically and not mentally. When in reality, he has quite a few issues mentally because of the viral encephalitis. They also state that he also raped Harriet Simmons. But again, as I mentioned earlier, he said absolutely not. You know, there was, if I remember correctly, he says there was a comment made about trying to get her to perform oral sex on him and that he said no. That is from his account. That is also from his sister, Becky, who told me this just recently, um, about six months ago, I believe it was, uh, maybe a little, little longer than that. Um, and unfortunately we've, we've lost her since that, but she told me personally, she was like, no, 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 no. There was question about this when he was a lot more mentally, you know, there, um, they all had spoken to him about this and he told them, he was like, no, this was a, um, possibility, you know, and that he said, no, he didn't want any part of it. So it was all Terry Hyatt. And we see this in the evidence, like with Jerry Harmon, that he was trying to get Jerry Harmon to go with him and do it as well. And Jerry Harmon told him no. So, makes me wonder if he just wanted to see someone else get off like he did. Now, the files on the on all the documents state that he did not say this that Dean did not say this that he did not admit to to anything it none of that is there so there's a bunch of fabricated comments and a bunch of fabricated things in this episode of Homicide City Charlotte now Dean does say you know as i mentioned earlier that they had gone on this trip to Myrtle Beach. They had beat up a couple of people and robbed them. Uh, had been in a couple of fist fights, But that was it. It was what it was. They were running with a, a crowd. They were being, you know, asshats. <laughs> but 
you know, he he is now dealing with all the consequences of his, his own actions. He served time for, you know, what he did. Um, and now, and he says, says now in his words, it's, he's still serving time for the things that he's done, just that God sentenced him. So, I don't know. Um, you know, if you have any questions about any of this stuff, I'll be more than happy to, you know, answer. Um, sorry if I got on tangents or if I get, you know, a little distracted as I'm, as I'm reading this out. Um. But I, I just find it really important. I know I talk a lot about my father-in-law here, um, even though he's not the one that did all this. But I was really pissed off. Um, my husband and I, like, we, we're just, we're really upset that he was defamed in such a way because it makes him seem like he's just an awful person um, that was involved in this as well. And he may have been accessory. He may have known about it. He may have seen. But again... You know, it was 20 years after the fact. Um, you know, he learned his lesson from everything that he had been through. So, um, you know, keep in mind that he still has family. Um, we are all here. We are all affected by this. Um, and he is still affected by this. So, you know, Pete, please try to be mindful and nice and not assholes about it. Um you know, we'll try to answer questions as, you know, tastefully as possible if you can be tasteful about it as well. Um, so if anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, you know, whatever, they can email me at serialzombiemoms at gmail.com. You can hit me up on the Facebook group, um, Serial Zombie Mom Podcast, or, or you can, um, you know, comment on the uh, Instagram posts for the episode. But... I'm going to end this episode and um, tell everybody to be mindful again. And I will keep you guys updated if I hear back from Terry Hyatt and see if we can get a couple of questions answered. Uh, my biggest concern here is that that was 20 years. There are so many people, so many women uh, that... We have not found the murderers for. Um, they're all a bunch of cold cases in and around these same areas. And according to Dean and Jerry Harmon, as well as, you know, a few other people who knew him, there's more women than just the three or four people that, that I talked about in this episode. There's a lot more. You know, I mean, he told Carolyn Brigman himself that he's thrown a lot of bodies in that river. And there's been a lot of bodies found in the French Broad River. A lot. So, it makes me wonder just how many he's actually killed that he's not serving time for. And I'm hoping that maybe through this we can find a few more. And maybe get justice for their families. So, you know, I'm sorry if I put a little bit of focus, a little bit of extra focus on my father-in-law, but I do feel like it was important to, um, to speak of that. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, and I hope that 
you know, it was concise enough and I got enough information out there. So, um, I'll see you guys on the next one.